wish you luck. Hello. You are kind of towards the end of this massive tour. Yes, yeah. That you've been doing. 100 days. Yes. That's a lot. Well, it's over the course of a year. So I did load in February and then I've done, and then I've done some in the autumn as well. So, yeah, spread out over the course of a year. And you went to Edinburgh as well, didn't you? Yeah, I did six nights in Edinburgh. OK. Why do you do Edinburgh? I think just because, you know, I understand for like a new comedian who's trying to get a bit of profile. But yeah, you but I only went for six nights. Right. So I went there and I thought well, it was a good way to sort of tour Scotland, but stay in one place. And meet up with loads of people I don't normally see because it's you know, most comedians are up there, so it's, it's a good opportunity to meet up with loads of people, have a few drinks with them because because everybody's sort of working all over the place. You never really see people like you used to. You used to see each other in clubs all the time, so it's quite nice to meet up. Do you like touring in general? I'm briefly interrupting to let you know that I'm Marsha from yesyesmarsha.com and this is from a series of interviews that I did from 2009 to 2011 called Marsha Meets, which were long-form interviews with stand-up comedians that eventually inspired the book Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. That book's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. Back to the interview. Do you like touring in general? Bits of it I really like. The only bit I really don't like about touring is trying to get to sleep because you sort of finish a show and you're wide awake and, you know, the obviously the options are to start drinking, but that's, you know, if you're on a long tour, you just can't do it, you know, have a couple of beers. So that's the really hard bit I find is, is just getting to sleep somehow. But, you know, I like, you know, like travelling around the country. I quite enjoy that, yeah. Does it feel like a job? Well, it is a job, yes. But yeah. does it feel like, you know, do you feel like I'm going well, to... Well, yeah, yeah. If you get to a venue at five o'clock and you've, it's your... I did I think I did 16 or 17 gigs on the trot and you get to the venue and you go, I've got to get myself up for this. I've got two hours to do it. That's a job. You don't feel like doing it. So, it's yeah, it's, it's obviously a job, but it's got far too much freedom and um, the rewards are too high for it to be seen simply as a job. So, if you, if you think about it that way. What do you think you'd be doing if you weren't doing stand-up? I don't know. I have no idea. I didn't have any career path before I did stand-up, so I was very lucky to discover it. Very lucky. I do appreciate how lucky I am. But you did have real jobs, I know. Yeah, I did lots of jobs, but they were kind of just jobs I just did, you know, whatever work I could get to get some money, so I worked on building sites. I did a short stint at the DHSS when it was still called the DHSS. I just did the training. I think it was like five weeks training, and I did two weeks and in those, in that time, I did. A, I was there for about literally like three months, and I had my full year's complement of sick days off. So I had nineteen days off sick, and then I just left with the. With, when I got my month's wages, I just left and went to Greece. So that door was closed for me. Okay. Uh, I realised it was that wasn't suitable for. I liked working on building sites. Those kind. Of, I used to work in factories. I worked in the, the kitchens of a psychiatric hospital. weren't you a goat herder at one point? Yeah, I did that in France. That was just a lucky little sort of number I stumbled into. In a farm in the centre of France, I worked there for about two months. Uh, what did, did all you have to do? Take the goats out to the forest. Well, milk the goats. Get up. Uh, goats get up early. They're like little children. They're pain in the neck, and they milk them, have breakfast, and then go take them out into the forest. That sounds like quite a nice life. It is. After a while, you go a bit mad on your own with loads of goats in the woods. You do go a bit nuts. I realised I had to stop. I was talking to myself a lot. <laughs> I reckon it's more stressful than you know being a sort of um, commodities trader in the city. Because you just lose goats. Goats just bugger off. They just leave you. What would you do if you... Well, you would go and find You can't go back without your full complement of goats. <laughs> so it was very stressful. I Probably the stress, actually, that's why I'm able to handle the comedy business because compared to being a goat herdsman, everyone thinks goat herdsman is <laughs> idyllic. 
Elysian <laughs> lifestyle, but it's not. It's a really, really stressful job. You've got a lot of responsibility. You've got someone else's, 26 of somebody else's most precious things. And, and they're wandering about, and you have to keep an eye on them. I used to work on building sites when the opportunity arose. I mean, I did quite a long time. Thickens your skin, pretty sure, yeah. Was that good preparation for...? I suppose so, yes, yeah, yeah. You, you get the Mickey piss taken out of you, the Mickey taken out of you a lot on building sites, and you do the same to other people. You're constantly just ripping at any kind of little shred of insecurity someone's got because that's just what blokes do. And it's loads and loads of blokes doing it all day long. So, you, yeah, you get quite a thick skin. But was that also quite a good grounding for the comedy in terms of, you know, were you was it that you were making jokes and people going, oh, you should do this? Cause you're oh, funny. well, everyone... It, building sites are very funny. Well, I don't know what they're like now. They used to be very funny places. But lots of funny people working there. Um, so, yeah, you were constantly... Uh, everyone's messing around the whole time, you know, just uh, being foolish or stupid. I mean, you, you, obviously, there's some blokes. You work hard. So you got used to that, but you mostly I think it's, the, it's the, the skin you develop. You develop quite a thick skin. I mean, I was always quite surprised, you know, as more and more people came into comedy from straight from university, just how thin skin they were. Like, you'd, you'd take the piss out of them in the dressing room, and they'd be genuinely sort of hurt and offended. you go, what's the matter with you? you know, it's like I saw it as that was like the sort of canteen, the dressing room, where people would just sit there and just rip the shit out of each other. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, when I started, there was people, blokes like Arthur Smith and Bob Mills and Nick Hancock, and they were just any kind of little slip-up you made, they'd be on you. And that was fine. You knew that was the case. And I think it's changed now. I think everyone's really sort of supportive and helpful and friendly. Really? And they just mo- sort of moan about each- behind each other's backs. So I, I, don't, I don't like this friendly, helpful, supportive business. I think it makes people a bit soft. But Especially also- when they're being a comedian. I mean, fair enough if they're doing something like, you know, eye surgery. Yeah, you probably need a bit of sort of comfort <laughs> and support and a stressful job like that, but... But also now it's different in that it seems like, um, just from having spoken to people who've been mm. doing stand-up for years, that before there was a lot of people who had done real jobs, whereas mm. now there's a lot of people who haven't ever. They're kind of starting Well, it's a career and... option. People, It was never a career option when I started. Comedians were people like Frank Carson, uh, Tom O'Connor. They just You would never consider being a comedian, whereas it's become something people want to do. It's become like rock and roll because young people want to do it now. That's yeah. the reason it's like rock and roll. It's nothing like rock and roll in the sense of the lifestyle or the behaviour, it's more to do with the fact that kids see it as something they want to do. How did you start doing it? Just purely kind of by accident, just by, by going to gigs and seeing people and thinking, and there was open spots and I thought I'd have a go at it. Do you remember your first ever gig? Yeah, yeah, I do, yeah, yeah, very clearly. What yeah. was it? It was in Hackney, there was a little pub in Hackney and it sort of went okay. There, was only, there wasn't many people in the, in the audience and I did five minutes and it was fine. It, actually, it was okay. It wasn't great, obviously. Can you remember what your material was then? No, no idea. Really? Long, no, no, it was ages and ages ago. My first gig was in October of 88, I think. It's a long time ago, isn't it? And then you just did it, I did it as a hobby for about a year. Just did it, didn't do any gigs, just did open spots. And you you could just do it, you could just turn up at places and they give you an open spot. Now it's much more competitive, I believe. You know, there's so many people want to do it. And sort of just drifted into it like that, and then realised you could make a living out of it. And so at what point did you give up your job? Well, when I saw people making a living and I thought, I could make a living out of this. And there was a thing, Thatcher, I mean, I, did, I hated Thatcher for lots of reasons, but actually helped me get started. And they had this thing called the Enterprise Allowance Scheme. You could even leave a job to go on the Enterprise Allowance Scheme. You didn't have to be on the dole. You sort of signed off or whatever, signed on for a year, and you got your rent paid, you got housing benefit, and you got £40 a week. If you had to 1500 quid in a bank account, that's right, and they would pay your rent for a year and give you 40 quid a week. 
and whatever you earned didn't affect that, didn't you? So it's not like normally with with benefits, or whatever, whatever you earn comes off your benefits. None of that. So it just gave you the opportunity to set up on your own, and whatever you earned, you kept. So you had to earn two hundred quid a week, and that gave a lot of people. So I know Dave Gorman started like that. I think quite a few people started like that. This gave them a little impetus to go. Well, I'll, I'll pack in work. I am indebted in a way. So you were doing gigs and you were making a living from it, and then the first TV thing that you did was Newman and Badil in Peace, and that. But that was kind of still at the height of their fourteen-year-old yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, fangirl. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were huge. Yes. Fame, and then you went on tour with them. Yeah. And was that actually Screaming Girls? Yeah, they were. Yeah, yeah. It was very odd. I couldn't understand it. I really didn't. They used to be the, the same ones backstage. I used to follow them around. Some of them. And they were very young and just obsessed with Rob and Dave. I don't know. I don't know why people become fans. I mean, I was never a fan of anyone myself, so I don't really understand it. Uh, I always thought way too much of myself. You know, that kind of fandom, that kind of completely committed fandom. But I think what I realised, I didn't understand, then I slowly began to understand what it was, was it was not really about Rob and Dave, it was about them. They had something in common. It was a way of identifying yourself with other people who kind of felt the same way as you. So when I first used to encounter them, I used to think they were sort of tragic, pathetic, idiotic girls. But then after a while, I used to sort of go, oh, I see. what So it's more about, and that's what it's about, really, being a fan. So it was quite interesting from that point of view. It is about the person. That's the sort of, um, that's the excuse for it. Well, you, while supporting them, played at kind of the ultimate fan church cathedral because you played at Wembley yes, yeah. and that was they were, was, were they the first comedians to yeah, they were, yeah, have yeah. a gig at Wembley yeah they were yeah yeah. and uh, how was that well I don't remember it clearly at the time comedy wasn't that big it's huge now loads of people do it but it was quite unusual I mean I thought the whole thing was obviously ridiculous but I enjoyed it. I, I had to laugh you know I got paid didn't, it was no pressure on me it wasn't my material I was doing their material and uh, yeah, it was good fun it was very very strange to travel around the country, stay in nice hotels. Do uh, you now when you stay in your yeah, yeah stay in nice hotels? Yeah, got a taste <laughs> for the high life because I'd never really stayed in hotels before. Nobody, you didn't stay in hotels. You would never you stayed on people's floors or B and B at the most. So that opened up that whole world of, of luxury linen, and that was good fun. I did, I did enjoy it, and it took me out of the uh, the loop, the grind of the circuit for a bit. I was grateful to them for asking me to do it. I think they asked me to do it because I was one of the few comedians who wasn't resentful of their success. Oh, really? People are very, very resentful of Rob and Dave, yeah. And I, I don't know whether it's because I used to work for years, but I, I, I always sort of took people on as I found them rather than, you know, Rob and Dave were very, very cocky, young, arrogant, successful young men, but they were all right. You know, they were always pleasant to me, so I was pleasant to them. And, and I don't think I was... I was definitely wasn't the most talented person to be in their sketch show, but I think they had me on board because they quite sort of liked my company and I didn't think they were I wasn't resentful of them people were really resentful yeah. of them really resentful do you think part of that was because of the screaming 14 year olds there well I think it was just the masses I think comedians have got this stupid idea in their head that the most successful comedian should be the funniest or who they think is the funniest and that's not the case it's who people like the most I mean that's obviously always going to be the mark of success so they had this idea that there was some kind of sort of honour and justice associated with being a, a successful comedian so a lot of comedians think, well, why are they being so? They've only, you know, there's a lot of comedians now. They moan about young comics being successful, and you think, well, of course, young comics can be successful because young people go and watch comedy, and they don't want to see some old bloke on stage. They want to see someone who talks about their lives. So you know, you've got someone like Russell Howard who's playing stadiums, and good luck to him. You know, he's talking to people of his own age or roughly his own age, and they want to see. You know, when you go when you're young and you go and watch bands, you want to see 
You don't want to go and see you two, do you? You well, want to they... see a band that is from your age group who knows about what you want to talk about. And I think that probably that was the, Rob and Dave were the first people to do that, and I think a lot of comics didn't like it. So that's one of the reasons I got on. I think I was invited to do the television show, and I went, yeah, all right. And, uh, and then I did the tour. So you did, well, TV stuff. You had your own TV show, a sitcom, 15 Stories High. Yes, yes, yes. Which uh, you wrote and starred in. started out as a radio show and then that's went right, on to yeah. the BBC two series and you had loads of you know like famous fans Matt Groening's a fan isn't he Armando Iannucci people who like it really like it I always do whenever I'm interviewing someone I say on it kind of goes out on the Twitter and Facebook I'm interviewing this person you know have you got any questions and all I had was loads of people going tell Sean I love 15 stories I tell him 15 you know yeah, thank the people you people who like it really high. love it and that's great yeah. that's really nice to you. and that's one of the good things about DVD is it it's almost has another life on it whereas in the old days I don't think video would have the same appeal or broad accessibility that DVD has. So I'm very grateful to the DVD format for doing that, because otherwise it would be dead, because it never gets repeated. I mean, not even on bloody Dave. I mean, you think you get a shot on Dave. I mean, some of the crap they repeat on that. But then, as soon as I start talking about it, it is quite frustrating that it just only exists on DVD. But people who like it love it. Do you think you'd do another sitcom? Did you enjoy the process? Well, it's very hard writing sitcoms. It's the hardest thing to do well, I think. I would do eventually, but I, after that, I thought, oh, I'm not going to do that. i go through all that again. So I sort of concentrated on light entertainment and my stand-up. Right. And so light entertainment, you are one of the team captains on 8 out of 10 cats. Yeah. Is it still ongoing? Because the last yeah, series yeah, yeah. was just quite recently. And, yeah, and yeah. Well, you never know. They just they just they make a series and they don't say anything. And then they go, oh, we want another series. So I assume it might okay. come back. If it doesn't come back, I'll just go, fair enough. It's been going for a really long time. It's a great show. It seems... It seems more fun to be on than some of the other panel shows. Yeah, not as uh, rehearsed. Yeah, definitely. It seems like they allow more ad-libs. I can never, you know, I can never tell. Well, I've battled for that. I fought for that right from the very start because we used to edit it. They used to edit it just into sort of jokes that people had written. And I said, that's not what people want to see, you know. And now we've got it. It's a longer show now. So, But I used to fight and battle and rant at the producers to say, you know, edit it, put this body. Because Jimmy's very good off the cuff. And I think people don't know that because his... Stand-up is a lot of one-liners, and now mm. he's so famous that he doesn't get hecklers as much mm. as, you know... Jimmy's very good off the cuff, and, and, and I like to mess around, and, and Jason can do it as well. And I think they, they've slowly edited it more in that, in that way. How long is the filming of each show? Well, to get it two down and to? a half hours. Oh, wow. OK. They all are. Nearly all panel shows are two, two and a half hours. They might as well. The producers might as well. They've paid for all this, paid all the comedians. They might as well keep you working and squeeze every last drop of what, you know out of you so I, I'd do the same in their shoes I'd make you work until you go because you never know in the last five minutes you might find something so they really do push you I mean I'm not, I'm not complaining I'm not saying like I'm a Chilean miner and I've been through hell but uh, they'd so yeah they, they would record for a long time Do you get any influence on who the panel guests are going to be? Not really no no very occasionally I say oh I don't want to sit with them really oh god it's like you know you know those people who just suck all the energy out of you <laughs> But, I mean, you don't say, oh, you know, I really like such and such, we should try and get them on. I might do, but it's entirely the channel really decide ultimately who goes on. So you can recommend people, but it's up to the actual channel. Right. They just go, oh, we want that person on and we think that's very good, you know, their profile of the show or whatever. One of the things with they have St. Cats is it's not just stand-ups. Do you ever get people that come on and kind of surprise you by actually being, they're quite funny? Yeah. You know, it's always good to have a comedian on, but too many comedians... It goes one way. But, you know, look, people like Jamelia, when she first came on, she was very entertaining because she's, she's this sort of very, very sort of... She looks like a very manicured pop star. But she's actually quite off the wall. I hate that term. 
she doesn't really edit herself. She's not really manicured in that way, in the way that she presents herself. So she just comes, says whatever's in her head. The less sort of comedic the guests, often the better the show is. Yeah. Yuri Geller was quite entertaining because he's just so convinced by himself. That's what's astonishing about him. He's just utterly convinced. But he must know somewhere that it's utter bollocks. But Do you think? Yeah, no, I think he does. He does know deep, really deep down. He's just covered it in lots of layers of <laughs> self-deceit. I mean, to wring that amount of money out of the sort of mildly uncertain is, takes some skill. <laughs> I don't think you can do it. You know, just with really? only one layer of self-deceit, you need many, many, many layers of self-deceit right. to be able to pull off that trick. Hosting. You've done hosting stuff as well. You had yeah. your show, TV Heaven, Telly Hell. Yeah. You hosted Have I Got News For You as well. Do you like doing that? Do you like kind of being in charge? Not really. No? Really. Pain in the ass, really. I'd do it, but it, it wouldn't be my choice. Right. I'd just sit around and make smart-ass comments from <laughs> sidelines. That's really That's my ideal world, really. Is Sitting it? Sitting there going... Just sitting there waiting and just saying something funny and then everyone looks at you for a bit and then they leave you alone. Uh, but um, it's not saying I'm turning down any hosting work. <laughs> With other stuff, is there anything that you haven't done that you'd like to do? Like writing, you've done... Are you, have you written films? Yeah, Where I've a written a few scripts. One of them got made. What was that one? That was called Filthy Earth. But that was with a mate of mine who makes art films. So I wrote a script with him and then he went off and filmed something pretty well. He got the money off the script and then he went off and filmed something completely different. So I don't really feel... That was my script that he eventually filmed. Which I get the impression is that's kind of the way with films often. Yes, You yeah, write a yeah, script yeah. and then... Well, I've written a couple of other scripts, but it's quite... It's a very hard thing to write films. It's a very long narrative and, you know, um, it's very incredibly difficult to get a film made, to get the money to get a film made. And even when people get films made, they're usually shit. In fact, they're nearly always shit. And in fact, most films you sit down and watch, you go after half an hour, you go, this is the same tripe. I've watched again and again, or I know this is the point they're getting to where they're going, right, we have to end this. It's very, very hard to write a good film, incredibly hard. It's like it's as hard as writing a really good novel. So I'm not actually that disappointed that neither of them have got made because they probably would have been shit like all the other films. I mean, I get given a box of DVDs at Christmas Universal because I've got my Lockipedia DVD out, and they give me a hamper of DVDs. It's very kind of them, thank you very much. But it's all, I look at it, I just go, I don't want to watch, I know all these films are shit. Transformers, Sherlock, I watched that in a hotel room, and that got good reviews, and that was just bollocks. Utter bollocks. I mean, No Country for Old Men was a good film, but that's quite unusual. What films do you like? What's your favourite film? I think my favourite film, one I've watched most in my life, is probably Pinocchio. I think that's my favourite film. And I think it's a good film, because there's lessons in there for everybody, particularly for unscrupulous foxes who sell wooden boys into slavery. <laughs> I like films from the 70s. I think that was a very good era. I mean, there's that great book, Easy Rider, Raging Bull, about that era of making films. And it was a great era for making films, where films were very sort of... They didn't have to be so formulaic. When you write a film now, everyone conforms to this sort of William Goldman-esque three-act film plot. And if you watch anything, even good films... I mean, like, say a film that, that Scorsese won the, the Oscar for, Departed... Mm. After a while, you just get it's so formulaic. All the character traits that need to be there are shown to you for the plot to work, are shown to you in the first five minutes. And they all have to have this kind of sense of jeopardy appears at this time, then they up the jeopardy. And I suppose that's just how they work, but everyone does that now, and all films are like that. I, yeah. I think there's, there's a reason those rules exist, but people write with those rules in mind rather than writing a story which just happens to coincide with those rules so you obviously have to have a narrative progression 
what I'm saying is that every film you can just see it so clearly. Mm. And it's like a 12 bar blues. It's like I'm hearing the same tune over and over again. And it's always a redemption story. It's always a Christian redemption story. And in my experience, people learn nothing in life. People go through these experiences and they learn absolutely. I don't know if you can swear on this podcast, yeah, but they yeah, learn fuck all. Nobody learns anything. All they do is they just get tired of doing what they did, so they just stop doing it. Nobody learns a thing. I don't know anyone in my life who's learned anything. Do you not think you have? Nothing. I have the same behaviour patterns that I had when I was seven. And <laughs> nobody, I don't know anyone who's learned a thing. What you do is you just, you might arrest it a bit. You might go to yourself, oh, don't do that again. But you don't really learn anything. You just learn, maybe you're exhausted by, you know, you go, oh, if I do that, that happens. You don't actually learn it in the way that they, they suggest in films, which is you have some kind of epiphany where you realise this is right, this is wrong, and this is how I should leave my life. So that's why also I find films bollocks as well, because they've got this no digs notion that people learn, and nobody learns anything. When you wrote the sitcom, did you have to think about those kind of narrative? No, sitcom's great. I like sitcoms because you don't have that rule. Nobody has to learn anything. It's not big enough a story, a time. So what you do is you have a problem and you re resolve you have various problems and you resolve them. And that's probably why film is so hard. Film is incredibly hard because you've got all these... Well, the idea is it's supposed to be the most important 90 minutes of anyone's life. Sitcom's much easier. Not easy, it's hard, but it's, 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 it's hard in a different way. Right. Let's talk about the DVD. Lockopedia. This is the show that you've been touring. Yes. So it's you doing stand-up, but then it also has another element to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's just that uh, every now and again I just do play audience battleship, so I just sh shout out a row and a seat number, like E24... And whoever's in that seat, um, they have to give me their name, a letter, and, and a word beginning with that letter. And then I just see if I can do something on it. It's just a bit of fun, breaks up the, the yakety yak of stand up. It gets other people involved in the show and, and uh, uh, has a sort of random element to it, which is quite good fun. Do you get really stumped by them? Yeah, of course, ever? always. Yeah. yeah. It's impossible to do. Is it? Yes. Well, because someone shouts out titanium. What are you. <laughs> not get any jokes based around uh, titanium alloys, let alone titanium. So what I do is, um, it's how I get out of it, really. It's your, right. Most audiences get it quite quickly that obviously I can't do it, and it's just me being ridiculous. But it just gets people involved in the show in a different way, changes it, and it goes off in different directions. And then I bring it back and I get... I can only do it if I had a really strong stand-up show. You know, you couldn't be like, going, oh, right, well, this, this bit's not going well, I'll try the lock. You, know, you can only do it if it, the show's going really well and it's a really strong show, and then you just... It's just a way of messing around. Did you ever think of doing that as the whole show? When I first started, I was going to do one half stand-up, one half that, and then I realised, no, that's I can't put people through that. Really? Did you try it out? I did. When I first started trying it out, I did, I did much more of uh, the Lockopedia. But I realised that, you know, you have to have some kind of base. You have to have something to work off. And actually, in the end, I was writing material, which I really wanted to do, which I really enjoyed doing. And the random bit was, was, was fun, and it was, it was a nice place to go to. The stand-up was, was overtook. I mean, to the point now I, I don't really need to do it anymore. I've got a two-hour stand-up show, which I do, which works great. But I still do it because I thought, well, I said I'll do it. Um, some nights I do it, some nights I don't do it very much because the stand-up works very well. So you've got the DVDs out, you've got a few more dates of that tour left. Yeah. Do you know what's next? Have you got anything else on the horizon? No, nothing, no. That's okay. the thing about this business, you don't know. Oh, um, but you never know. So the DVD's out now. Mm. Lockipedia. Sean Locke, thank you so much. Pleasure, thank you. <laughs> 
Thanks so much for listening. If you like that, you'll probably love the book that I put together with Deborah Francis White called Off the Mic, The World's Best Stand-Up Comedians Get Serious About Comedy. So asking them things like, what's your writing process? How do you find your voice? What do you think about touring? How do you deal with hecklers? We interviewed 42 stand-ups, including Eddie Izzard, Sarah Millican, Phil Jupiter, Stuart Lee, Mark Maron. It's out now on Bloomsbury Publishing. If you want to find out more, go to Yes Yes Marsha.com forward slash off the mic.